things which are written in it. For the time is near. For the time is near. And I also want to remind you of the name of the book, Revelation. It's not Revelations. It's plural. It's one singular revelation. It consists of many different symbols and visions and things like that, but it's one complete revelation, the revelation of none other than Jesus Christ. The most, uh, well, th that's important for us to remember because as we, as we go through and study this book, the bowls and the trumpets and the seals, the things that we read about, we need to remember uh, those are all just passing through. The center of it all from, in, from beginning to end, the center of the stage is Jesus Christ, the revelation, the unveiling of him. That's what that means. All right, so we're going to pick up tonight in verse 9, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. We're going verse by verse here, and uh, I encourage you to follow along if you can. I'll read. It says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is John the Apostle. It's the second time out of three times he's identified as the writer here. And he, in verse 9, he'll start to begin his experience of receiving this unveiling, the revelation of Christ, how it came about to him. And first he says, he's our brother and our companion in tribulation. He identifies as that same John that walked with Christ, who had a special relationship with him. He's our brother and our companion. In the kingdom and in the patience, and that he was on the island Patmos for the word of God, for the testimony of Christ. Now, if you didn't know some background and how John wound up on that island, let me catch you up really quick. There was a ruler named Domitian. He had John, who was in his 90s at the time, exiled to this island. And uh, Patmos is off of the coast of Turkey today. It still exists. There's people that live there. Um, but what happened before he was exiled, because of John's commitment to the gospel and to, and to Christ, Domitian tried to have him put to death. He tried to have him boiled alive in oil. So that's why John is considered a martyr. You may be surprised to know that it did not kill him. In fact, it's like he wasn't even harmed by it. He didn't experience any pain. But that must have freaked out Domitian. There was rumors that went out afterwards that John the Apostle, he could not be killed. And then he was banished to the island of Patmos. So that's how we wound up there. And again, Patmos is a, a small island, and prisoners were sent there to work in mines. There was a small mining community at the time on the island, and that's what he was doing. He wasn't there alone. He was mining rocks. So tradition says that John worked long, hard hours without enough food to keep his strength up, without enough clothing to keep warm. And there was days there, uh, again, in his 90s, that he thought he would die on the island. But uh, Domitian eventually died somehow, and that allowed John to return off of the island. He went back to serve as an elder in the church at Ephesus, and that's where he died of old age. Or did he die? <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> um, John, again, he says our, 
He's our fellow in tribulation. He identifies with us in that. And tribulation will become an important part, an important, an important phrase in our study of this book. I think it's important to understand now that any tribulation, tribulation which, which comes into our lives that we experience, it is governed by God. It's allowed by God, correct? Yes. So Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Also, Paul wrote in Acts 14, 22, he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So we have tribulation in this world. As believers and followers of Christ, we experience that because we live in a fallen world. Because of a sinful humanity which embraces traditions and values that are opposed to God or contrary to scripture and contrary to what, to what we believe. And some of us, just in that, just in taking a stance in, in cultural, cultural divisions, experience tribulation and adversity from our families, our friends, the people that we're surrounded by. But we also may experience an exile of sorts when you decide to become a follower of Christ, depending on your circle, that is tribulation. And in addition to that, we experience more from the spiritual realm, from our nemesis, from our enemy Satan. And the, again, the important thing for us to realize now is as we study the book of Revelation, we are coming to a point where we will get to chapter 5 and we read the origin and the, and the source of that tribulation which we experience that changes. In chapter 5, the origin of the tribulation changes as Jesus Christ in his redemptive form, whom we'll read about, as the Lamb of God, he begins to open the seals and the seals work themselves out on the world, a, a God, Christ-rejecting world. And it will enter into a period of time that is designated for seven years, a, tile, uh, a time of tribulation in the last three and a half years of that time of great tribulation. So the origin of this tribulation will change, and it will change from the world, from the spiritual realm, from our enemy to the throne of God. And I believe that as believers, we are not exempt because we serve and we love God, right? Right? From tribulation today, John also clearly experienced this, but when this point comes and the, and the source of it all changes, I believe that is what we are exempt from, from the tribulation of the throne of God. Because we are exempt and we are purchased by blood, I believe that tonight. And uh, here, what John is saying now is that he's at the island of Patmos. He was there, again, for the word of God and for the testimony of Christ, and as I was preparing this. It didn't really dawn on me. I've read this before. I don't think I understood this fully until I studied, though. It's because of his faithfulness, he was exiled. You know, I think when we experience hardship or adversity and conflict, uh, immediately there's, there's a reaction, there's an instinct to ask, why? Why is this happening? What did, why, what did I do? What went wrong? And why... God, is this getting at me? Why are we experiencing that? And we got to 
figure out what's wrong, what we need to do to relieve the pressure? Was it because I haven't been serving enough or I haven't been in prayer or I've offended somebody with my speech or my words and I need to reconcile? But the truth is here, John, again, he was, recon- he was exiled. He was f- facing tribulation because of his faithfulness, not because of something he did wrong, not because of his sin, because of what he had done right. And if we do what is right and we commit ourselves to serve God and we honor him, we will also face adversity, just like John does here, because of his faithfulness. But the interesting part, or the play on words here, says it's for the word of God and for the testimony of Christ, right? The reason that he was on Patmos, that was the reason for the testimony, for the word of God. But in the grammar, when you break down the translation of these, of these words, what it's saying is pretty interesting. He's saying it was for the reason of receiving it, the word of God and the testimony. So in order to receive it, that he could receive it. That's what he's telling us, the very reason he was on the island, so that he can receive the revelation, which this agrees with verse 2 in chapter 1. It says, John, the first time he's identified, who bore witness of the word of God, now the testimony of Jesus Christ. And of all things he saw. This brings the idea together here. It wasn't happenstance or coincidental that John experienced tribulation and wound up exiled on the island. It didn't happen that way and God decided to intervene and just use him in those circumstances. <clears throat> it was part of God's sovereign will that John was there. And I understand this is a long explanation. It may not mean a whole lot to you, but this is where it may mean something. I believe that God uses times in our lives of sanctified loneliness and isolation to draw us nearer to him. There are times when God will drive us to an isolated place, and that could even look like a room full of people. And some of you may have experienced that. Some of you may have stood in a room at a party or an event or in church even, you just feel insulated from the crowd, like nobody could get to you. And there are times in our lives where loneliness is, again, it's prescribed by God. I'm sure that John realized that. So, granted, it's important to make a distinction. There's other times in our lives where loneliness is self-imposed, right? Right? Sometimes people are just lonely or isolated because they're weird. Um, And uh, if you're born again, I think we're all supernaturally a little weird, right? We're a peculiar folk. But the times here when God intends for us to experience loneliness, when it's a sanctified time in our lives, I believe it's because there's something of himself he wishes to reveal. And you would see this in scripture. Moses was taken into the backside of the desert for 40 years. Daniel was taken into captivity into Babylon, away from his family, so he could receive the visions. Paul was in Arabia on the backside of the desert. John the Baptist was taken into the wilderness to prepare for his ministry. And so we've seen it in Scripture, and we've experienced that. The lonely times in our lives when they come, I encourage you to consider what you can learn and how you can draw nearer to God only in those times, in those places. It's not by mistake, John says. It was was intended by God for him. To be there, so he could receive this great unveiling. All right, that's verse nine. So, moving on. Verse ten, it says, "I was in the spirit on the Lord's day." 
he heard, or I heard a verse, a voice behind me, as of a trumpet, as of a trumpet. He's describing the, the appearance, the things he sees and hears using terms like and as. So this is what he knows to, to give us the, the description. Now, again, this is how his experience began. It says that he was on the spirit in the Lord's day. Now, this verse is highly debated. There's differing opinions that loom over the interpretation of this, and, and tonight you're going to hear mine, obviously. But I encourage you to read the scripture and search the scripture. This is just my opinion. There's other takes that are just as valid, and so uh, I, I encourage you to uh, challenge yourself and challenge me. But what I think he's saying here is not that he was spirit-filled on Sunday. Um, I don't believe that. There's a couple of reasons. First of all, um, if he was spirit-filled on Sunday, what was he on Saturday or Monday? In the flesh? <laughs> so I don't think he's saying that. And also, spirit-filled Sunday, the Lord's Day, that terminology you don't really find in the Lord Testament or the New Testament. What we read of is the first day of the week, rather, and so, because of the way he uses the phrase, though, I was in the spirit later on, this is why I believe what he's indicating here is a change of condition. He was taken from a physical to a spiritual being by God and supernaturally taken into spirit, uh, taken in spirit to the dates and the scenes that he was going to see pass through. That's what, that's what I believe. Now, in verse, or excuse me, chapter 4, if you look there, verses 1 and 2, he uses the same terminology and it makes a, a, a clear picture of where he's at. This is obviously a heavenly futuristic setting. Verse, how about halfway verse uh, through verse 1, chapter 4. After these things I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. And verse 2, look at this. Immediately I was taken into the Spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So immediately it says he was taken in spirit. Also, if you look at chapter 17, Revelation, verse 3, he uses the same phrase. So he carried me away again into the wilderness, or carried me away again in spirit into the wilderness. So he describes the experience in, again, this experience in spiritual terms of him being carried into the wilderness somewhere. So last time is uh, chapter 21 and verse 10. He says, he carried me away in spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So here again, I, I believe he's taken in spirit. I don't think he was saying he was spiritual on a Sunday. I think that what he's Declaring as he became the condition of his reality change, which was from physical to spiritual, and he was taken into the Lord's day or the day of the Lord. That's the concept we're reading of here, I believe. The Lord's day, not as in Sunday. But, yeah, John was transported in the spirit some 2,000 plus years into the future, where he is seeing all of these things unfold. All right, now moving on, verse 11, saying, he is hearing a voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book, send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, 
to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, I want to share some interesting passages with you as you consider the Alpha and the Omega in Scripture, the first and the last. Who is that? Jesus. It's God. (laughs) Now, this is a good set of Scripture to keep on hand for your Jehovah Witness friends, Jehovah's Witness, if they come to your door. And you don't have to turn here. You can write these verses down if you want. We're starting in Isaiah 41, verse 4. He says, Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first. And with the last, I am he. And when your Bible reads Lord in all uppercase letters in the Old Testament, this is the God of Israel, Jehovah, this is Yahweh. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6 says, Thus the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the, man, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Also in Isaiah 48, 12, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my call. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. So, if we go back now to Revelation, we've already heard him declare this once in verse 8. It says, I am in the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and is to come. The Almighty. And now, again, we're in verse 11. Some of your translations may not have this first part of the verse, and that's okay. Uh, It says, verse 11, I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now, we have a couple of more of these. Just hang in there and write them down so you have this. Verse 17, also in chapter 1, it says, this is John speaking, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first, and I am the last. And then finally, Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible. In verse 13, we hear this again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so, we haven't necessarily identified the speaker yet, but now in Revelation 22, verse 16, it says, who is speaking? I, Jesus, have made my angel to testify to you the things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. So Jesus Christ, this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Jesus Christ is God. Amen? Amen. Besides him, there is no God. There's another example of this later on in his physical description we get from verses 14 and 15, and we'll read that in a moment. But you think about what's happening. When John hears this voice, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, he knew that phrase. He had studied Isaiah. He may have been terrified in this moment, thinking this might be the God that nobody can see and live. I don't know if he was considering this is the Christ that he walked and, and lived with. Perhaps he probably sounds a lot different than he did before. <laughs> looks different. So it's taken him a long time to turn around. As you read, it says Christ, Jesus is saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, what you see right in the book. He's turning around as he's saying this, perhaps. And how could he resist a turn? But before we move on to verse 12, I wanted to point out, it says, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches that are in Asia. And then he lists out these seven churches. 
Pastor Conrad introduced this idea last week, and if you haven't, if you weren't here or you haven't uh, watched those recordings, I encourage you to review. Um, as we get into chapters two and three, we're going to read and learn an enormous amount about these churches. And one of the questions, though, that we can ask or that hits us as we're studying this book is why these seven churches? It's the, the, the revealing to John is taking place about 60-ish years after the Pentecost. So there's been some time. There's been some churches established. I've read that there was at least about 100 of them around. So you may ponder this for a minute, and you wonder, these are not the most known or prominent churches from the New Testament perspective, right? I mean, other than Ephesus, we probably wouldn't have known or heard of any of these churches were it not for the book of Revelation. So you could ask, where's the church of Rome? Where's Jerusalem? Where's Colossae, Philippi, Galatia, Antioch? That was the headquarters of Paul's ministry. So why did God pick these seven? And there's going to be, as Pastor Conrad introduced last week, there's a series of reasons that will that will come up, but I want you to recognize that not only did he pick these seven in particular, but he also picked them in a very specific order. Um, so there is, I am never, I never cease to be amazed at the precision of scripture, and this is one of these unique selections of it. As we study the, the letters to the church in the next few weeks, I encourage you to read the scripture, search them, bathe yourself in the scripture. All right, moving on. Verse 12, John says, And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, you may see the term candlestick in your Bible. I think that's an unfortunate translation. The term candlestick it really means light bearer, or lampstand, rather. But the difference between candlestick and lampstand is that candles are self-consuming. Right? A candle burns itself out, whereas a lampstand is fueled by oil. And I don't even think candles themselves were actually invented the time that this revelation took place. So, concerning though, really quickly, I just, small segue here the I am statement of the Alpha and the Omega from verse 8. We could talk a lot about the I am statements from Scripture, especially from John. But when you read of the lampstands in Revelation, what I am statement do you think of? Lampstand, light bearer. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, right? Now, by the way, in case you didn't know, uh, because I definitely won't get to the end of the chapter tonight, uh, the lampstands are the church. The church is the collective church. It's identified in verse 20. Um, Jesus said, again, I am the light of the world. Now, one of the things uh, I'm really excited to share with you tonight is, is maybe more of an exhortation or encouragement um, to complement your study of Revelation. And it's a small, unique study in itself. And perhaps if you've done this in the past and you're familiar with it, you could brush up on the near term. But that would be to do a study of the tabernacle, if you haven't. 
And the tabernacle, you'll find it in Exodus 25 and other chapters, but when you study the tabernacle and you understand the arrangement, you'll see that all the details and the materials and the instructions, it all speaks of Jesus Christ. It all points to Christ. And it's really, it's a fascinating study. The symbolism of the tabernacle with the I am statements and is very important to understand in general as you go throughout Scripture, but also Revelation in particular. And uh, let me just explain a little bit here. If you focus or you think about now the tabernacle as you would walk through the gate in the front of it. Inside, you've got a brazen altar, you've got a laver, there's a holy place and the holy of holies. And on the left side in that area, there was a menorah, a single lampstand with seven branches on it. And now, each of the seven elements in the tabernacle, if you don't know, Jesus lays a claim to. And let me give you an example. There was one gate to get in and out of the tabernacle, right? And Jesus said, I am the door. Right? The um, bronze altar, it speaks of the cross. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Right? And with the labor, he is the resurrection of the life and, and so forth. I don't want to spoil all of that for you. But as you think about, when you go into the tabernacle, the only source of light in that Holy of Holies place was this seven-branched lampstand, which, of course, Jesus lays claim to. It's interesting, but not accidental here, that in the book of Revelation, we're no longer seeing a single lampstand with seven branches, right? We're looking at independent lamps representing churches in the collective church. I imagine maybe they're in a circle, maybe. But it's no longer a lampstand with branches. And this is fascinating to me. I don't want to derail our time but I, I, again, I encourage you to, to connect the references made in the Old Testament, especially in the, in, the, uh, in the tabernacle from Exodus to the book of Revelation and how that is represented. So, I saw seven golden lampstands, verse 13, and in the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the foot and girded with the breast of a golden girdle, at the breast of, with the golden girdle. Now, in the tabernacle, the person who's responsible for tending to the lampstands, trimming the wick, and pouring the oil, who do you think that was? The high priest. That was his responsibility. If there was anything wrong or unsatisfactory, he would... Fix it. He would tend to it. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's one of his jobs now. Amen. Amen. He is in the midst of the candlesticks. Where's Jesus Christ right now? He's in here. Amen. He's watching. He's inspecting. And if you know who Josephus is, he's a Jewish historian. His records tell us that the priests were girded around the breast also, like Christ is described here, not around their waist or the loins. And that seems to support the idea of what we're looking at. The image we have of Christ here is his role as the high priest tending the lampstands. All right? And that's, again, what his job is now. Amen. His role right now, we know from Hebrews 7.25, it says that he always lived to make intercession for them. 
That's another role. He's, our, he's interceding for us. He's also, some of the other things he's doing is he's cleansing us. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then also he's our advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. 1 John 2.1, My little children, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. All right, so there's another role, though, Christ has, and it's not thought of or spoken of as often, and that is he's our inspector. He's making notes and reports, and that's basically what the chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are. Again, we're going to learn an enormous amount from these reports when we get there and read that. So in verses 14 and 15, we now hear this or get this description of him standing there. It's very similar or analogous to the transfiguration you read about in Matthew. Also, he is likened to the Ancient of Days in Daniel, if you're familiar with that. Here, and we'll read about it in a moment. It says, his hair, his head and his hair, white like wool, and as white as snow, his eyes were like the flame of a fire. And so uh, if you've studied the book of Daniel, you know he wrote the description of someone on the throne. And uh, if you're familiar, do you recognize we're talking about the same person here? Let me read Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Daniel said, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, the Ancient of Days, whose garment was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Again, you notice the same description. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels or feet that was a burning fiery fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and judgment was set, and the books were opened. So who are we talking about here? Who is the Ancient of Days? Jesus. Well, God the Father is the Ancient of Days. But in this, the description we have is clearly Jesus as well. Now, I don't. again, this shouldn't shock us because we have a triune God. Jesus Christ is God. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a Three person in one being. All right, now, moving on. Verse 15, it says, His feet were like bronze, as if they burned in the furnace. So, the feet are typically, as they represent in Scripture, the walk, obviously, of something. But the purified bronze, or brass, as it may be translated, was the material in ancient Israel that could hold up or that could sustain fire. So, it is used to symbolize judgment in the Old Testament. Hence the brazen altar, representing the cross. And his voice sounded, and his voice like the sound of many waters. So I think most of us, you think of a, a body of water which would match maybe the sound or even come close to the sound of Christ. What is, does anybody think of one in particular? Niagara Falls. Yeah, it's always the same one. Yeah. No, I can't imagine having a conversation with someone who speaks Niagara Falls. But I think it's a 
good analogy, good, good representation. So verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So this is what he looks like. This is Jesus Christ in his fully redemptive, fully glorified form. All right. Um, the seven stars in his right hand for a moment. I'm not, I'm not going to go too deep into this uh, because it is brought back up and addressed in verse 20, uh, which presumably we'd be covering next week. So let me just set it up for you. There's another debate over this verse as to what the identity of the stars are. Um, and what we read in verse 20 is that the mystery of them is revealed as the, the angels of the seven churches. And so that's where uh, the debate splits. And so basically, the, the word angel means what? Messenger. I believe uh, these messengers are the overseers of the churches, the pastors and the elders. Right, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I don't think Daniel, is, or not Daniel, John is instructed to write the things down that he sees and sends them to the churches. So if he's sending them to the churches that the angels are, are over, why would they need it? Also, in the nature of his letters, he's correcting them, reproving them, and I don't think that would apply to angels either. So that's my opinion. There's also valid positions um, and, and, and takes... Uh, to say that they are actual angels, like the guardian angels of the church. And I wouldn't argue with that, but I encourage you to read the scripture and study it. There is no better, what's the word, commentary on Revelation than the book of Revelation and the Bible. Um, if you really want to make it exciting, you can use a concordance and look up the words, study the words. But I encourage you to search the scriptures in this in this study. Be blessed, like it said. All right. Now, concerning his countenance. Oh, well, it said, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining at its strength. So to look up at him, he was so bright that he was brighter than the noonday sun when it was at its full strength, when it's at its brightest. I think for us to understand that if we go try to look at the sun, it's not, you can't do it. You'll, you know, go blind. You'll damage your sight. And so it's a, it's, it's a befitting description, I think, to talk and speak of his glory, his magnificence. And so we uh, read of John's reaction, his appropriate reaction here in a moment. But again, this looks, it sounds, and reads like just exactly what took place on the Mount of Transfiguration. He took on, when he took on his original glory. He was transfigured in front of the disciples, and it said in the scripture there, he was so bright, he was glowing through his clothes. The, the language says his clothes weren't shining, but he was so bright, he was shining through them, through his garments. So, out of his mouth it says, when a sharp two-edged sword, a sharp sword, and if you recall Hebrews chapter Four, yep. There's a different word used here for sword in Revelation in Hebrews. I would encourage you to look that up. It's interesting. But the idea is still the same. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is quick or alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing center of the soul and spirit 
and to the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now also, when you think about this, you read of Jesus standing here in the midst of his churches, the seven golden lampstands. John describes him as we read of him being described in the book of Daniel. I believe what we see here is Christ in his redemptive form. He is getting ready and, and set for judgment. But he is among his church at the moment. That's interesting. And it says the Bible, excuse me, and the Bible says, out of his mouth with came a sharp two-edged sword. And what is the sword? It's the word of God, right? That's what Hebrews tells us. Now, Jesus himself spoke to this before he ascended back into heaven in John chapter 12, verse 48. It says, Jesus speaking, He who rejects me, it does not receive my words, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken would judge him in the last day. So the very thing that people are rejecting, the word of God, for whatever reason, whatever excuse they have, how could you read that? It's not, that's a fairy tale. That's fictional. It's, that's the very word is what God is going to speak out to judge them with. Judgment is coming. And the time is near, it says. The sense of urgency is heavier now than it ever has been. So verse 17 and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. There's an interesting sequence of his reactions here. It says, He heard originally, and then he turned. He saw and he fell. That's our challenge tonight. We need to hear and we need to turn. What's a synonym for turn? Repent. You have to repent. You can't say you love God if you won't repent of your sin. And then we need to see him, and we'll fall at his feet. I think any of us here today, no matter where we are in our spiritual walk or our growth, we would have the same exact experience. We would experience him the same way. Now, the beauty of this to me is that it says he put his right hand upon him and said, Fear not. Don't be afraid. It's just the touch of the Lord for John that was sufficient to calm his fears, his anxiety. And I think that's a testimony to the blood and the power of Jesus Christ as a sufficient Savior. The reason John fell down in front of him is, again, the same reason that you and I would. is because he was immediately made aware of his own corruption his own frailty, his own sin, as it were, the old nature of him, he collapsed in front of the presence of a holy, perfect, blameless God as he sees the full price of his redemption. And what the Lord says to John is, Fear not, I am the last, I am, I am the first and the last. I am God, the one who is alive. Yes, I became dead, but I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So, the payment of his blood was sufficient enough for a holy God to reach down and save an unholy, sinful human being like me and you. And he says, Christian, John, don't be afraid. Don't fear. 
And what a great consolation that is for believers and those who know Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's really the biggest challenge for us tonight is this evening, if you don't know him as Father, as Savior and Lord, Redeemer, and Shepherd, Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 6.12, Now is the time. Today is the day. The end is near. Now, the decision you make to follow or accept Christ is the most permanent, eternal decision you'll ever make in your life. Whether you know it or not, our immaterial selves, the weightless part of us, the software as I call it, will live on forever. We'll either live on in the presence or in separation of God. So we need to understand that we're sinners. We're born into a fallen world. We're naturally wicked and moral. And every person who's ever existed since the fall has been separated from God. But God, because of this great love, a love that we don't even have the capacity to understand, he reached down in his mercy. He laid down his life for us on the cross like the good shepherd. He made salvation possible through his blood, through his suffering. How incredible of a gift. I think about this every day, and it's still a mystery to me. But after three days, he lays in the grave. He died after dying on a cross. He rose, conquers death in the grave, and he holds the power to death and hell. That's what the keys are in verse 18 that he says, I hold, I have the keys of Hades and death. Now, there's more to that verse. I think Pastor Conrad may probably need to start from there next week, but... You also may need to go back to verse 9 and redo everything I'm talking about. So we'll see. Um, I know. That's, a, that's the end of my notes. So uh, what questions? The Trinity. Yeah. I apologize. I had prepared more, uh, prepared more but as I was preparing... With more, I, I, thought, I thought it was necessary to actually take some out. So, yeah, thank you very much. Um, I would, uh, again, encourage you and exhort you one last time to be blessed by the study of Revelation. I think, I don't, I think it was Jackie last week who testified to, if you don't have time to read the scriptures, which I, I understand, that you can, still, you can still bathe your mind in, in, uh, in listening to it, in the audio on your way to work or in the background. But if you do have time to read it, I would, I would encourage you as well to commit as much scripture to memory as you possibly could. Maybe you do more than read it. You can write it. You can type it. I often think about how much or how little scripture I'll have to know at the Bema, the, the judgment seat. And so be blessed by... Studying Revelation, as it says, and, and, uh, and, and read your word, draw near to God. I am thankful that we have a pastor who is willing to study and teach us Revelation. Um, it, I, I have the, the perspective from Kristen sometimes that tells me that his, his time in the office has, has exponentially increased in study. I don't, and this is probably personal, but two to three times what it is normally, he is studying. And I love Pastor Conrad for that. I appreciate him and the elders that he would take the time and invest it into the word of God that he loves to bring it forth to us. And so let's, let's grow together and be blessed together as a church as we continue the study of Revelation.